and gentlemen, welcome to the Art of Disruption podcast from Tabare, bringing you the world's best artists and gallerists wherever you are. Welcome everybody to a new episode of the Art of Disruption podcast brought to you by Tabare. This is your host, Will McBain, and I hope everybody is keeping well wherever you are. Uh, we have a great show lined up for you today, where we are joined from his studio in Beirut by the exceptional Lebanese artist, Ghazi Baker. Uh, he's a truly special artist from a special country, and so I'll keep this intro short today, uh, as this show is absolutely jammed-packed as we hear from a master of fragmentation, an architect by trade, but now uh, a bit of an art rebel, if I may say so, and someone who's gained worldwide demand for his contemporary visual paintings, drawings, sculpture and prints making. It's said in Lebanon that the land is too small for the Lebanese, and I just hope this podcast is big enough uh, for all of you Baker supporters, be you in Lebanon and around the world. So please make yourself a nice cuppa, or perhaps something stronger if that's your preference, and sit back and relax for today's show. Hey, good morning, Gazi. Hey, Will. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. How are you? In a while. I, t- I take it uh, from the looks of it, you're in your studio in in Lebanon, in Beirut. I am. Actually, I'm in an area of Beirut called Hamra, and uh, my studio is just uh, one floor down from my house. So I live just above my uh, my studio. So it's perfect for for a pandemic lockdown and uh, <laughs> and everything that's going on around the world. I just have to put on and go down a flight of stairs, and that's it. Yeah, I've I've been I've been looking at your Instagram uh, over the last over the last week, loving it, and I I really I love your your current you're a boob series. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess these are they, they're for some reason I I think people are liking these, and uh, uh, you know the the funny thing with that one is that it started. With you know, uh, in the U.S., they when, when you want to say that someone is a moron, you you can actually say that you're a boob. So I thought that this could work. I would transpose the boob idea on a male face, so as not to be, so as uh, there won't be any kind of sexual explicit, uh, you know, um, innuendos going on. It'll just be male faces with boobs which makes them boobs right. basically and then i got carried away so now i have like uh, I'm, I'm i have like a couple of sketchbooks filled with uh, you know just a whole bunch of of ideas about uh, male guys with, with just boobs on their face faces and that's the the one you saw that i posted i think yesterday was uh, just one of those it's a semen Booby, you know, so it's semen Bobby, just a, a pornographic kind of insult uh, uh, taken to the extreme, if uh, if you will. Yeah, and it's and it's number two of your your boob series, I think you wrote. 
Actually, it's uh, it's number four, but I just didn't want to post the other two because they're uh, they're one of them is reserved, and the other one I want to keep for myself, I think. So I didn't want to post them, so I didn't want to go through the you know the messages. I want to buy this, and no, sorry, it's not available. I want to buy. You know, I get like fifty to a hundred messages on each post uh, for for wow. sale purposes. So. Uh, whenever I don't really feel like I, I these days I'm not into uh, social media a lot. If you notice, I'm posting once a month barely. Yes. So, so just because I don't feel like interacting with people that much, uh, so the the alternative to that is just not to post a lot. It's not good. I know it's not. And and Mark, the the my gallerist keeps saying you have this amazing account. You just need to keep posting everything, anything you're doing, just sketching. Just and the, the thing is, you you have to when you post, you have to interact. Or people actually get uh, you know they'll, they'll get mad at you. They'll think you're some stuck up uh, ass who just uh, thinks he's too important and so on. So not so as not to do that, I just take periods of time where I don't post a lot. Uh, I need to do that again. I need to start doing uh, this again. But, uh, well, anyway, that's about it. But you know what? Since we're talking about that one, I just, I'm going to send you a WhatsApp with the one I'm working on right now, which is, which I think is the best of the boob series. I haven't posted it. And it's just for your consumption. So. Awesome. I've got my phone on me now. Well, that's good. This one, the one I just sent you, is called Ali Babubi, which is Alibaba. <laughs> sure. I'm, this is awesome. I'm looking at it now. I love this. It's, it's in process. It's still a work on the pro- in progress, but uh, sure. I, I think this sure. one will, will probably be a, a good hit. And, and so uh, Alibaba, the... Um, and his forty thieves. Uh, and his forty thieves, exactly. And so, yeah. is 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 there any is there any uh, conflicting meaning behind this? Is there any um, person in mind? Well, actually, it's the forty thieves that are basically uh, running politics in Lebanon right now. You know, we've been having so many issues with uh, with everything in Lebanon these days. I, I, I'm sure you're aware of the the political class in Lebanon and their history of uh, just pure theft and uh, basically they're, they're just asses so and these days it's even worse because we're, we're getting you know we got the the covid vaccine the pfizer vaccine a couple of weeks ago and the uh, thing is that they were supposed to start vaccinating older people and uh, the medical the frontline workers uh, and so on and it turned out they started vaccinated uh, our, our basically our parliament members <laughs> as uh, as are you are kidding me? I swear, and it's it's and the thing is that we if we didn't even pay for the vaccine, we got it through the World Bank uh, World Bank health loan. And one of the conditions was that there would be no preferential treatment. And now that the, the WHO and the and the World Bank is are, are threatening to withhold the rest of the vaccine that are coming in because of that. So these assholes just like, they just don't get it. You know, the, the country is completely in ruins and they're still doing this, this kind of stuff. So Ali Babubi is just like, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of those. It's, uh, it's just the 40 thieves. There are a lot more than 40, but it's just the 
Ali as in Middle Eastern, uh, possibly Lebanese uh, name, and uh, 40 Thieves and the Baboobies, basically. So, so the baboobies of of parliament or the boobies of uh, Lebanese government will have yeah. their uh, have their vaccines and exactly. be in uh, be, be on be on the beaches and in the best restaurants soon, whilst the rest of the population is in lockdown. Absolutely, now you're getting it. Yeah, but it's it, but it seems like a, a, a cathartic way of 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 dealing with these asses in uh, pouring it into your. Uh, Ali Babubi and your art. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, you see, that's the whole point, I guess. It's, I know it doesn't do anything. Uh, it doesn't change anything. But at least I know that I said my piece in the way I, I do best. So it's one of those. It's one of those uh, political statements that is hidden uh, with something that is aesthetically pleasing that people could like. And if a collector that buys it wants to understand the whole thing, I'm, I'm willing to explain it and actually tell them exactly who that is supposed to uh, to say uh, you're a boob too. So <laughs> right. that's one of those things. Awesome, awesome. And, and, and talking of, of collectors, Gazi, I mean, we, we know that your art, I mean, it flies off off the shelf to use a, a little bit of a crude analogy um i, I mean what what's that like uh, the, the fact that uh, your art is sold so quickly i mean is there any part of you that would like to hang on to to some of your, your pieces a little bit longer that's a good question you know at, at some points i get this uh, feeling that maybe i'm just uh, you know they, they always say that when when an artist creates anything whether it's whether it's poetry, art, uh, music, whenever they let go and they let the public, the general public, uh, take a look at it or listen to it or hear it or read it, whatever, uh, it's like you're losing a part of yourself. Uh, I actually understand that. I get that. And especially with paintings, because they're such a physical, unique object, you know, it's not like, uh, I would guess, Mm -hmm. music, for example, where you still have it, but it's it's listened to by by a lot of people. So with paintings, I actually lose it. You know, you do the, the, the work, okay. you put your ideas, you put some, I would guess, some kind of uh, emotions in it, and then you just, it goes away. Now, the trick is that uh, either you decide you want to do this professionally and, and commercially, and you have to just understand that, or you just don't, and you keep uh, you keep doing this uh, for for decades, and you just don't show people, or you just decide not to sell, uh, which I was doing for like 15, 20 years. So at the time, that was difficult. The forty p- first paintings that actually sold were really difficult. I mean, you just look at an empty uh, wall, and you know that there was a painting that you liked there. Uh, that was a bit difficult. Now with time. It's uh, it's being replaced. That difficulty, I think, is being replaced by the satisfaction that someone is appreciating it somewhere. I do make it yeah. a point to try and uh, either know about or meet or talk to most of my collectors. I mean, anyone who actually wants to get a big painting of mine or a major piece or more than one piece, I would make the effort to actually at least talk to them. 
And I, I, I know this is going to sound a bit corny, but actually a few times I decided against selling to certain people simply because they didn't get it. Uh, because ah, I know they, wow. they like the yeah they like the aesthetics of it, but they they actually didn't get the meaning of the painting, and I explained it, and they still didn't get it, or they had different opinions, and that actually gets to me, you know. That that sounds that sounds like quite an awkward conversation. I mean, how how did you how did you broach uh, that topic of of re ref refusing to part ways with one of your one of your <laughs> creations? That's the, that's the good thing of, of with having a supportive gallerist, you know. Most of those <laughs> meetings were at the galleries, uh, and so I just turned my back and left. I did that a yeah. couple of times, and I just left Mark uh, with the hassle of actually dealing with the with the people that that were left standing there. <laughs> so I know it's awkward for him, but I mean, he gets paid to do that, right? So we might as well uh, get the the uh, bad side of the equation sometimes. Yeah. So that, I mean, I mean that's that seems. Uh, I mean that sounds fascinating for me. So it's it's really important for you that when this painting goes into someone else's house, that that the people viewing it on a on a daily basis truly understand what this painting represents. And and so you are having these conversations with collectors talking about the. The philosophical trends and themes um, behind behind your mind and your work. Absolutely, absolutely, and that's that's what makes it slightly better. When you're losing a piece of uh, of art that you create, you think you created, and you actually put a lot of uh, effort into, uh, and you know it's in it's sitting in a good place, in a good house, in a good uh, I don't know corporate uh, offices or whatever it is. If you know that people will appreciate it for what it actually is, that's that's actually the reward you get for losing the uh, the piece of uh, art. Uh, it makes it better somehow. It's not the same as still. Ha I, I would love to have all my artworks, uh, you know, just next to me, just stacked up against the wall somewhere. I can well, I can look at them every second I want to. I know yeah. this is not going to happen. So the next best thing is to be satisfied knowing that it's in a good uh, in a good place in a good home with people appreciating it. And I love the fact well that uh, you know a year later, two years later people would actually come up to me and say, you know, this one uh, that I have hanging in my living room is just amazing every day I have routine now. I just make my coffee and sit down and look at it and it's still gives me something new almost every day. That for me is like worth, you know, losing the, the artwork completely. I would actually pay to get that, uh, that kind of uh, feedback uh, from people. That's awesome. That's awesome. And is there, I mean, I mean, you mentioned with your Aboob series that you're keeping one back uh, for yourself. Is that, is that something that you've done with previous series or that you're perhaps you're thinking about with your future work, just so you have a, a remnant as it were? Well, I think it's a combination of both. Uh, I've been told uh, a few years back that um, most artists actually keep some of their uh, artworks, at least when they're themed uh, series, uh, they keep one or two for themselves. Simply because, you know, my, my prices, uh, the, the worth of my art is going up. And it's going mm. up quite quickly. 
And I don't want to get to one point where, uh, let's say, uh, an artwork of mine is worth X, and I've sold the whole series uh, for, I don't know, 500% less than what it what will be worth in 10 years, and I regret that. So I've started doing this uh, for the last, I think, two or three years. I've started keeping, at least, at least trying to keep one or two of every series that I make, and uh, those are one or two that I actually uh, don't don't accept selling, except that it's not working every time. Whenever close personal friends actually want one of them, I'm unfortunately I'm I'm agreeing to it on the condition that they will not sell it. You know, just I know right. that they're at uh, at a close friends uh, place, and I know it's I can see it when I want to. I can use it in an exhibition if I want to in a retrospective at a later time. So I I know that I won't be able to make money on it, but at least I know that it's accessible at some point if I want it or need it. Brilliant. And I, I mean, aside from uh, quite obviously logical reasons, I mean, I mean, also the sentimental reasons of, of making sense of this year. I mean, your work is also like a diary. I mean, in five, 10 years, looking back on 2020 and the first part of 2021, it will be, it, it will also be a fascinating uh, introspection of this this crazy period that we're all living through as well. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's, uh, as you said, it's it's literally like writing in a, in a diary. It's uh, yeah. it's the ups and downs of, of uh, every trial and tribulation we've been through for the last year and a half. And, and in Lebanon, actually, you can say it's almost been two years now. We've been having, on top of the COVID uh, pandemic and everything, we've been having our own you know, special issues in, in Lebanon. So uh, I, I think if you, at some point down in, you know, the, the, the nice thing about doing this kind of work that is socially, hopefully socially relevant, is that at some point, uh, I don't know, maybe 500 years from now, when someone will look at the uh, sequence of art that was produced during this year, they would be actually able to read uh, some of the events that actually transpired during this couple of years in Lebanon and probably uh, around the globe. I, I've had some paintings about Trump done. I've had some paintings about, you know, global events. Uh, they we were talking about this earlier. Uh, I think uh, global events are, are things that they actually just hit you right. If something hits you right, that's going on sure. in, in Argentina, for example, in Brazil, in, in Southeast Asia, in Myanmar, and wh whatever that is, if something just hits you and you can create some work that has uh, any kind of meaning or, or is, is actually a statement about what was going on there, I think there's relevance to that. Even if it's just the opinion of some uh, as sitting in Beirut doing his art and thinking that actually changes anything, which it doesn't, obviously. It's just relevant somehow uh, as, a, as, a, you know, as a historical thing for the legacy of, of humanity, if you will. I don't want to sound too corny and, and making things too uh, much bigger than they actually are, but... Uh, it, it's, it is a fact, I think, that most of our history is 
uh, a good chunk of it is seen through the sequence of, of artwork historically that were depicting different events in, in history in different areas, uh, starting with yeah. the, the, you know, the cave paintings, uh, Lasso to the, uh, I don't know, to the Renaissance, to the, all artwork is uh, historically relevant to give us an outlook of people who were concerned about what was going on around them at the time. We, we get uh, we get this through books and art, basically. As you say, art will be a historical uh, historical record for this generation and for the generations to come to make sense of this this period. Um, and, and thinking about the subject matter and, and themes of your works uh, now and just the, the underlying philosophical thread behind them, um, I've, I've been reflecting on your background as an arch- architect and I wondered how much uh, your art has been influenced by the, the fragmentation and apparent lack of symmetry um, found in postmodern deconstructionist architecture. Oh, that's a complicated question. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> it's good that I have my coffee next to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> all right. Well, to, to start with, um, you know, the idea of deconstruction is, uh, in, in my opinion at least, it's quite complex. But in my opinion, in my understanding, and in my, if, if, uh, if I may, in my interpretation of it, uh, is, is mostly about being able to read not just between the lines, but into the lines. Uh, into the lines in the sense that you um, you know it started as a as a reading uh, as a critical reading kind of philosophy that translated right. into most everything. Uh, when it started mm-hmm. with just reading, it was mostly about defragmenting letters and words in a sentence to get some kind of different meaning that the author would actually. Uh, was trying to to say. Now, to get this yeah. into any kind of visual uh, art form is um, is quite tough. At least it was in the late eighties and early nineties. It was done by a few uh, brilliant architects. Uh, I can think of Peter Eisenman and uh, possibly Zaha Hadid at the time and uh, uh, Bernard Chumi, uh, to just name a few. Uh, and in the art world, it was it was done brilliantly by a guy who's not that well known as a as a painter. Uh, he's more of an illustrator, if you or a graphic artist. His name is Valerio Adami, uh, okay. an Italian guy who's just honestly he's just brilliant in my mind. He was one of my you know uh, go to artists at the time. And these guys basically uh, were able to translate the meaning of trying to reinterpret uh, a word or a sentence into visual uh, form to do that okay. they were they tried everything they tried basically to uh, by saying deconstruct i don't mean uh, to ruin or destroy something i just mean to um, to disassemble something visual uh, back to its basic roots and just build it up again in a different uh, in a different uh, aesthetic uh, value. I think deconstruction is a misnomer. It should have been called maybe something like disassembling and uh, reassembling or something uh, right. closer to that. 
It's just about, you know, if you have a, a Lego set of something and you just take out the, the bricks and you just build up something different with those same bricks, uh, okay. this is more of, uh, you don't actually break each brick so there's no uh, breaking down or ruining something. You're just disassembling the the visuals to bring up something that could have been uh, more in in touch with what the initial author wanted to say. In in another sense, to make it, I don't want to complicate things a lot, uh, but to make to make it simpler, it's the same as if you would. Uh, Take a glass of water, uh, empty it, and just fill it back with uh, whiskey, for example. You're still using the two elements, but in a different way. It's the opposite of actually taking the glass of water and just breaking it uh, on a floor or, you know, just throwing it and breaking the actual glass and the water is spilled. That is not reconstructable in the sense of, uh, having a new meaning that is uh, possibly more in depth, uh, in depth with what in touch with what the author wanted initially. A glass of water filled with water. You break it down; it's just pieces of glass on the floor and some water around it. So I, I don't know if that's a good analogy, but I think that would explain a bit more the uh, the underlying uh, concept behind what I'm trying to do. I'm sure I haven't gotten to the point where it actually shows uh with the with the artwork if you just look at it but it's i think it's a long it's a very long process and the fun is in the process itself you know it's much more than getting to a direct result i would be very disappointed if i get to a point where i have one painting that actually explains all that i'm trying to to say because after that, I just have to to look somewhere else for something else to to get me going. <laughs> the process is the uh, is the fun part. It's the interesting part. It's the part where you're actually questioning yourself, where you're actually enjoying the innovation you're, you're trying to to project on your uh, work. And I think that if you get to a point where the painting is done and it actually shows everything you wanted to show. Uh, from the beginning, then for me, at least personally, um, I'll probably be done. I'll maybe take up poetry or (laughs) music instead. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you. And um, I hope you, I hope you haven't finished all of your, your coffee for the question I asked you next. Oh, I'm, I'm done. It's like my my third coffee for the day already. So (laughs) 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 don't worry about it. Yeah. I, I mean, we were speaking earlier. Um, about how, how Lebanon is, uh, you know, a nation of conspiracy, revolution, dramatic emotions, unsettling imagery. And I just wonder how we can tie in um, deconstructivism. I, I mean, what is it about deconstructivism that, that appeals to you, that makes sense to you? Or, or why are you a deconstructivist uh, creatively, creatively? Oh, that's a tough one. That's a really tough one. I, I think I'm going to have some cognac with the coffee now. Uh, <laughs> right, I'll join you. <laughs> let's say that uh, any kind of uh, negative connotation that comes into any social order that you have around you, any kind of social 
interaction that you have. Uh, the way to actually try and understand it or to make sense of it uh, could be done through some form of reassessing of the basics of that social interaction or societal uh, norms, if, if, uh, if you will. Uh, okay. Meaning that, for example, Lebanon, which is a basically failed state in, in so many senses of the, of the word, if you want to make sense of what should be happening in Lebanon, uh, then one of the ways, at least in my opinion, being a, well, not a, I, I wouldn't say I'm a deconstructivist artist, but I would say that that's a philosophy that I, I understand well and that I can apply uh, to most see that most things uh, that I need to understand well. And that would give me the yeah. tools to actually try and get back at the uh, initial roots of, of what a country should be, uh, what do, as a country, as Lebanon, what do we have that actually works, uh, and try to see where things went wrong, and if you could do it in a different way. And I think right now in, in places like Lebanon, uh, which are all around us now these days, I would, I would say Lebanon is, uh, right now is probably at the same stage uh, I don't. I absolutely don't mean at the same um, level of uh, of advancement or or anything that has to do with this kind of uh, description. But I would say Lebanon is like Brazil, like Venezuela, like uh, even the U.S. today, post Trump. You know, the the U.S. Sure. has the basically the same issues that we have in Lebanon, but they have much more money to do, to basically fix things. The, the economy is obviously different. The, the scale of it is completely different. But I mean, the at the root of it, the real issues, uh, racism, uh, uh, the, the stuff that we go through in, in different countries, if you deconstruct them, I'm going to use that word because now it fits. If you deconstruct them or uh, defragment them or go back to the basics, you would see that you would have almost the same elements everywhere, the same uh, resultant deconstructed tools uh, anywhere in most countries. If you could take down the idea of a certain civilization, uh, you would get the same basic tools to build up another civilization, whether it's in Lebanon, the US, uh, Brazil, China, whatever that is. We, we've had coffee and, and cognac. I'm not sure what you'll need after this question. Perhaps um, <laughs> some absinthe or or something even stronger. But I, but but I wanted to uh, to ask whether you think you could have um, established a, a career as an artist anywhere else, or, or is Lebanon vital to your to your art? Uh, that's a good one. That's uh, you know that's one of those uh, wish I could have. Uh, I, I wish I knew how to answer that and i wish i could have tried uh to work in a probably different uh, country or a different setting or social environment but what's the the only way i can answer it is that i'm i'm sure that the baggage that i have the luggage that i get from being lebanese and and, and having lived through most of my life in lebanon is definitely something that affected the way i see things now, uh, could I could I have 
done this somewhere else, probably, yeah, I can still do it today. I can move and just paint uh, almost anywhere. Uh, the trick is mm -hmm. that uh, would it have been different if I started painting this somewhere else? Probably, yes. I don't know if, if creativity is something you get born with or it's a social uh, environmental uh, element that you get affected by when when you uh, live your life, you know, when you spend years doing something in a specific place, you have to be affected by environmental uh, elements. Uh, so I think I, I would I would say that I would like to think that I could have been creative the way I am anywhere uh, anywhere else. But I'm not so sure, honestly. I, yeah. I, I do think that creativity is somewhat uh, directly linked to, to society, to your environment, your direct environment. And your creativity is usually, in, in my, my opinion, creativity is uh, really triggered or, or harassed by uh, anything that happens around you that is extreme whether it's injustice, whether it's uh, politics, whether it's something that you just know is, is incorrect and it's, uh, it's, it, it actually gets you, uh, it gets the ball rolling creatively. You do juices, yeah. they get affected by injustice, by, uh, you know, anything that gets you riled up will, will actually improve or affect your creativity uh, in, in the positive sense. So Lebanon helps a lot <laughs> when it comes to this. You say your uh, creativity is linked to your environment. And um, yeah, talking of your environment, the whole world stopped uh, last August when one of the biggest explosions in human history happened at the port uh, of your home city, Beirut, um, when, of course, a huge amount of ammonium nitrate ignited. What kind of effect uh, has that had on yourself and your city? Uh, you can get um, so in the first few minutes were like a nuclear explosion and it was like it's a mushroom and, and you know images started coming in and it, it was actually a mushroom it was actually a yeah. mushroom cloud it was that big i mean the blast was just tremendous blast the impact of it was so big that when we started understanding where it actually happened uh, which was in the port of beirut um, we started realizing the the, uh, the amount of explosives that must have been there uh, to to create that kind of uh, you know effect and that kind of uh, I would say uh, uh, distribution of of, uh, of force. I mean everything shook. I mean no glass was left in Beirut. Uh, uh, just buildings crumbling all around. I mean, we didn't, it, 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 our area was not that badly hit compared to the center of the blast, but it was just horrific. I mean, just amazing. For a very politicized nation like Lebanon, um, that blast must have really, uh, really accentuated the tension with, within the country itself, and lots of lots of blame. I mean, what effects, what residual effects has that had on the on society? I'm, I'm not sure you <laughs> you want to go there because you know it's we as you said we're completely screwed up as a country. I mean, we're so politicized and so uh, 
you know, everyone has sides. Everyone has, most everyone actually has sides and uh, believes one side uh, opposed to the other. And it's it just emphasized the, the partitioning we have in the country. I mean, uh, people came together for like maybe first 48 hours, maybe three, four days to the maximum. And then it was again just, these are the guilty ones. These are the ones at fault. Uh, it's it's just typical of Lebanon. I mean, uh, we we do that. Unfortunately, this is what we always do. Uh, there are still there's always people who just go down and start working. These are amazing people that uh, basically these are the actual people that love their country. You know, the, the ones that actually put country above all else. And these guys are always there. I mean, whatever happens, these guys are the ones on the ground working, helping people, trying to build things. And uh, these are these are the actual Lebanese people. You know, uh, they they try to help, they do what they can, and and then you have the uh, basically parasites. You know, on the edges, uh, just trying to to talk over these people that are actually doing the work. These guys don't do anything. They just try to, as you said, politicize the issue, to try and gain as much uh, political uh, credit as, uh, as they can. And uh, they don't, these are the ones that have been running the country for the last 20, 30 years. They don't do anything. So basically that's the story of, of uh, Lebanon. It was just, it, it came out to the, to the basically to the to the world uh, during the explosion because it was such a big thing. Uh, but we know that we know how things work here. So it was it wasn't anything different. I mean, we've had a, a very long year, year and a half. You know, uh, we were uh, going through a so-called revolution. Uh, they wanted to change the uh, the system, the political class, and everything led up to what happened on, on August 4th, and uh, when it actually happened, for a few minutes, maybe for a few days, we thought that this would be it. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't, again. It was just a huge explosion, uh, an amazing amount of destruction, a uh, couple of hundred people dead in a second, uh, five, 6,000 people hurt in hospitals, and... Uh, and a huge amount of uh, destruction of houses destroyed, people without homes, uh, uh, lost their their cars, their uh, their uh, the roof over their heads, and everything came back to the way it was before. In a week's time, that was it. This was it in terms of uniting the country or finally getting change? Yeah, I think we all had this, uh, this impression that this should be it. I mean, you know, you, if you think about one single uh, instant where basically the, the path of the history uh, of a country could change, that is one big reason enough for, for it to happen. Uh, it, it, at least in my opinion. I mean, what can you ask for more than one of the biggest explosions ever in the history of humanity? Uh, that was supposed to make things uh, you know, just change in a in an instant. Unfortunately, it did not. I mean, it's been five six months now, and uh, five months, and we're still where we were. I mean, nothing's changed. Uh, 
we still don't have a government, by the way. Uh, I don't know, yeah. if you know a lot about the politics in Lebanon, but the present government resigned uh, a couple of weeks later after the blast, and they've been trying to form another government ever since. And you wouldn't believe the amount of problems that we have, that we just need anyone running things. And we don't have even that. They can't even get, you know, get together to form a government and start running the country. Wow. Wow. And and, and does that encourage um, people to leave Lebanon? Because, of course, Lebanon, for anyone that's traveled throughout Africa, the Lebanese are pretty much everywhere in Africa, running businesses, setting up lives. And also, of course, in South America and in many other parts of the world. And it's just incredible to think that this relatively small country has just such a huge reach, a huge global reach. Um, but I, I wonder about this young generation. Are they looking to leave and set up lives in other parts of the world again? I would definitely say so, yeah. I, I think, you know, it's uh, Lebanese have always been doing that anyway. And now it's just more uh, added reasons to... Uh, to do that, it's, uh, you know, we've, we've always had more people outside of Lebanon than in Lebanon. There are more Lebanese, and I think there's like 20 million Lebanese outside of Lebanon and about 6 million Lebanese in Lebanon. So we've always been uh, this uh, the, the, the kind of people that actually always want to find better and uh, more fertile ground somewhere else. Uh, Lebanon is too small for the Lebanese, basically. It's something that actually I've heard a thousand times uh, when I was a kid. And I, I've come to realize it's probably true. It's, it's, uh, the Lebanese are much, uh, I mean, the, the country is like too minuscule for, for the Lebanese. You know, they just need to do everything everywhere, uh, every time. It's, uh, uh, there are Lebanese in the States and South America and Australia and like there's no place where you wouldn't go and find a Lebanese restaurant or a Lebanese-owned company doing uh, some weird crap uh, somewhere. Or uh, these are this this is that's the history of Lebanese basically. And, and the people that do leave, and perhaps thinking about the Lebanese that go all, all throughout Africa and Nigeria, Ghana, and Gambia too. I mean, the Lebanese have such a strong influence on on business in this in this small country that I am in. Um, do they have? Do they retain their links with with Lebanon? Um, will the, will these people continually go back? And and how do the Lebanese view the people that leave? Uh, well, you know, it's uh, Lebanon has survived basically. Uh, during the civil war and even post uh, the, the civil war, they survived because of the uh, Lebanese uh, diaspora, basically. Uh, so they can't but view them with uh, adoration, basically. You know, they're the ones that uh, kept the money coming in and, and came up with the. I mean, you know, uh, a Lebanese would go to the US, he would find something that works there, he would just bring it and come back to Lebanon and open up a small thing that is a. Uh, uh, basically a, a cliche of something that works in the US or something that works in, in Australia or uh, you have the other kind of Lebanese that go to let's say for up to Africa and they just uh, make plenty of money then they just come back to Lebanon build a great villa start uh, 
a new kind of business for the family. They would still be working in Africa. They would still be working in the U.S., in Europe, everywhere. But they would reinvest in, in Lebanon somehow and let the whole family come in and help and make more money. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, we, we're, like a, we're like a tribal country. Uh, and yeah. that's, that's the problem on one side. And that's the, uh, probably the reason why we survive for so long with so many problems on the other side. So, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, it's, we're a weird bunch of people, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's a, it's a difficult country to understand if you haven't lived here. Uh, yeah. I, I would, I would think that's the best way I can put it. I mean, that's the most uh, pleasant way I can say it. Brilliant. I like that answer. And um, I mean, I was re- I'm always fascinated to how the Lebanese got to got to places like Nigeria and, and Ghana and the Gambia. And I was reading some doctoral research of uh, of an author the other day, and it's Lebanese 200 years ago were trying to get to Brazil 150 years ago, and for one reason or the other. Um, they didn't have the funds to continue their journey or they had um, some kind of dodgy captain of the ship who just left them in West Africa or told them that this was Brazil. And so that's how the original Lebanese in West Africa um, came here. Or that's one theory, but I don't know what the theory is. Uh, I, I think you're, you're probably right about that. Uh, I mean, we've all heard the story about the... Uh, the ship captain that tells you uh, I need, uh, let's say, a thousand bucks to get you to Brazil or to, to to New York or something, and then he just throws you over in, in Ivory Coast or somewhere like that, and and then suddenly it's success story. Uh, Ten years down the line, he comes back to Lebanon with like uh, millions of dollars, and uh, uh, most likely it's true. I mean, some of it must be true. You know, there's uh, there's no. Uh, there's no uh, fire without. There's no smoke without fires, so I'm I'm sure something uh, is true about that. Uh, now the, the funny thing is that uh, it's like a, a rights a right of passage for for Lebanese to, especially with, with Africa, to try and work outside of the country. Uh, I've done that myself. You know, when I was uh, when I was I'm still an architect, but I mean when I actually that was my main day job basically. Uh, I was running my own office and I got offered uh, the opportunity. I, I had worked plenty of times in Ivory Coast and I built villages there and uh, did like large urban uh, projects and, and things like that in, in Abidjan. In, uh, in Ghana, actually, I worked a couple of times there, did some private villas uh, uh, all over the place, basically. And then... Uh, I think it was in 2001 or something like that. I got offered to do this huge military city thing for the uh, Congolese government, for the RDC in Kinshasa. So I lived there for like two years. Wow. And, uh, that was one of the, uh, well, actually it was, it was a fantastic experience. I mean, I love Africa. Africa is like the, you know, it's the source of everything basically. Uh, and... The, the problem, the actual problem is I tried working there for a couple of years. It takes a special kind of person to, to be able to do business there. You know, I would have been happy as hell doing uh, maybe artwork or shooting uh, movies or uh, anything that was on the creative side, but actual business, you know, building things, contracting and things like that. 
It's as tough as Lebanon to work uh, to work in. So uh, I couldn't make it past two years, a year and a half actually. Uh, it was, and the time I was there was the, one of the toughest times for for the Congo. It was uh, just between the uh, you know the change of uh, government and uh, riots were taking place, and it was really a, a tough time to uh, to be there. So I couldn't cope with it. Uh, many Lebanese do. Uh, they do that and they do it successfully. I wasn't one of them. I, I probably have my my own uh, sensitivities or uh, maybe uh, you know. Uh, uh, I I just connect too much to people, I guess, uh, one way or another, and uh, I get too emotionally invested in, in uh, whatever environment I'm working on. Th- that's one of the uh, one of the uh, uh, one of the bases for a good artist, I I would guess. Uh, but at the same time, that's one of the worst things you can be as a businessman, I guess, uh, especially if you're working in some place like Africa. So it didn't work. I came, I'm one of the failures uh, of, of the typical Lebanese that goes out and makes it big. Uh, I spent all, most of my money there and I came back and started working again in Lebanon. Um, I, I've tried that repeatedly. You know, I tried it in the UK, I tried it in Switzerland when I was a kid. Uh, uh, tried it a few times in European countries. Lebanon is very uh, special. I hope someday you'll be able to make it here. You'll, you'll see that it's it's special in 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 all its extremes, if you will, in the negative sides and in the uh, on the positive uh, positive sides. Yeah, I would. I mean, I'd love to go to Lebanon, really, and especially Beirut. And talk, and talking of uh, of your home city now, it's um, can, can you be an artist in Lebanon without being political? I mean, or is it, or is being an artist in Lebanon an inherently political act? That's a very good question, actually. Um, listen, the the honestly, uh, you can't be a Lebanese without being political. Uh, let let me start it that way. Now, being an artist and being political implies that uh, your work actually expresses your political inclinations. It doesn't. Uh, I wouldn't be able to actually provide for my, to to express my political views uh, in my work, simply. Uh, Most people wouldn't get it. I mean, outside of Lebanon, most people won't get it. In Lebanon, uh, some would get it and like it, some would uh, get it and hate it, and a big chunk of the population would not actually get it. So I've, I've made a conscious decision to very rarely make political statements in my work, except when it's too big of, a, of an event or, too, uh, or I feel something really strong enough to, uh, then I say I just have to express it. I did a few paintings on the revolution thing that was going on a year ago. Uh, I Most people didn't like it, uh, so I still have a couple of those paintings uh, because they're used to my paintings being happy, being, uh, you know, positive. And in, in, even if the subject matter is, is a negative subject matter, I always, because my work is mostly sarcastic, uh, I always find a way to present something uh, even if the message is negative, even if the subject or the theme is negative, I always try and present it in a visually 
let's say, appealing way, you know, so that people, at the end of the day, this is something that people would want to hang in their homes, in their offices, uh, in, a, in a, an exhibition space. So uh, visual, uh, visual, a visual connection with the people who are looking at the work is, I think is much more important when you're trying to give out a message uh, that is negative. So if you can yeah. do that in a positive way, I think that at least that's my way of uh, seeing things. I can, I can, you know, I can talk about death if you want. I can express it in a painting that will actually look uh, okay for kids, look visually pleasing for even kids. Not that I try to do that, but I'm just giving you extremes, you know, uh, something as bad or negative as a pandemic uh, in a happy uh, outlook with nice colors. With It doesn't have to be, if I want to tell you I'm against, uh, let's say, male chauvinism, which is a global message, uh, I would mm -hmm. much rather say it in a funny, sarcastic way uh, a colorful way than just in a you know dark uh, the, the message would get through in a much easier uh, easier way i think and that's that's been that's been the the majority of my work uh, so far and, and i mean talking of your work it's you have a very distinctive language i i think very honest and pretentious um visually arresting lots of bold colors, strong lines. And of course, you're, you're completely self-taught. So I'm very interested to know when, when did this art or creative um, blossoming emerge? You say that you, you've worked in Africa as an architect, um, but, but your, your, your trajectory as an artist is a, is a little unique. I mean, if you could tell us a little bit about that. Uh, unique, I don't know about unique that much, but uh, what I can tell you is that uh, you know, self-taught is probably a slight exaggeration because I, I am an architect at the end. And one of the reasons I wanted to do architecture ever since I was a kid is because, uh, well, my dad is an engineer to start with and he used to draw very well. And I've been surrounded with by artists most of my life. And the reason I wanted to go into architecture is first because I love architecture. I still do. Uh, I hate the clients. That's a different, uh, completely different uh, thing when it comes to architecture, the business side and the client side of, of architecture. But it actually, you know, architecture is, uh, I always had a, I had a professor at, uh, at uni that used to say uh, architects are uh, people who know something about everything. You learn just the basic things about almost everything. I mean, you can fix a car, you can uh, talk medicine with a doctor, you can just the basics about almost everything. Uh, one of those basics is uh, arts, basically. You have to, to be a good architect, you have to have a good background in all kinds of arts, whether it's sculpture, uh, it's, it's uh, drawing, and you have to know how to draw to be a good architect. These days, everything is done on, on CAD, on computers. But when I was in, in university, computers was, were, were just coming up. We used to sketch things uh, on paper. Everything, perspectives, 3D models, uh, everything had to be sketched. So it gives you the basis for 
for basically the technical side of, of art. Uh, now, to add to this, I've been I've always painted and uh, drew before I started architecture. And during architecture, all my electives were uh, art related. So I did sculpture, I did drawing uh, courses, I did uh, uh, any kind of courses that had uh, that had art uh, related to it. I did. And uh, to uh, to add on, on to add to this, uh, even my my the courses that I couldn't uh, that I had to take like philosophy courses or. They had to do with history of art. They had to do with philosophy of art, aesthetics, and so everything was was uh, you know was biased towards uh, art. So I wouldn't say I'm really self-taught. I had some great teachers that gave me what I needed to uh, to start with, and probably the rest is uh, I would say like sixty percent is self-taught, and the rest is actually uh, not academic uh, fine art, you know, the typical going to a fine art school and doing the oil painting and the techniques and everything. This I actually had to do myself. But a good chunk of it uh, is probably uh, I've learned from going to school, from reading books, from watching movies from... So it's not really self-taught as much as uh, I'd like it to be, but it's it's part of it. And and do you think there's a there's a, a real synthesis between your between your um, creativity as an architect and the way you work as as an artist, or or is there a kind of rebellion in your art? That's an excellent question. You know, I've, with all the interviews I've done, I've never I've never been asked this, and that's actually one of the toughest questions to answer. There is, if I have to be honest with you, uh, there's definitely a rebellious side. Uh, you were asking me about the thing that's behind me, uh, something I'm working on. That's definitely anti-architecture. If you yeah. think about it, it's just I force myself to be just expressive directly on a canvas so as to, and I tilt everything. I just go against the grain of everything I've been told, you know, I've worked as an architect for almost 25 years. Uh, I I make it a point to actually go against every single atom in my being when I do something like that. Now, on the other hand, that's why there's so much differences in so many of my paintings. That's why I do, uh, let's say, a solo show with everything being this, and then a few years later, I would do something that's completely organized, straight, uh, that's just basically architecture. And there's yeah. something that you can't unlearn, you know. Architecture is, uh, I can never say I'm not an architect, I'm a painter. I'm an architect. That's the bulk of my, my uh, I cannot unlearn what, uh, what I've been doing for the past 25 years. So it has to show somewhere. And the funny thing is that when I do the expressive, you know, uh, the expressionistic uh, work like the one behind me, at a certain, uh, after a certain time or a few works, uh, I actually miss going back to the organized, uh, unchaotic. Really? Uh, yeah, at some points I do. And I'm, I'm just being honest. I, I try not to, but it does happen. It's... Uh, it's a fact. You need to, uh, it, at least for me, I need to, whenever I go completely chaotic, expressionistic, and 
just not uh, on a canvas. After a certain period, let's say a month or five months, a year, I just have to do something that uh, gives me the stability and the uh, you know organization uh, that I need to have in my brain to actually fix things to be able to do the crazy <laughs> stuff again. That's quite cool. That's a very cool way of seeing it. It's um, you have you have Baker, the architect, and Ghazi, the artist, and sometimes they merge, but sometimes perhaps they're in a in a little bit of jousting and competition with one another, perhaps. Jekyll and Hyde, yeah. I think there is some bit of uh, some some of that going on at some point. And sometimes the 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 best part is when you can put both these uh, extremes uh, on on canvas you know it's uh, sometimes it, this is what works yeah and that's that's when i'm i think i do some of my best work when they actually this completely uh, you know uh, uh, opposites uh, come into uh, on, on a single uh, artwork that's very tough to do but sometimes it does happen um, I, I, yeah, I hear you. I think, um, of course, you're, you and your gallery are now listing uh, a few of your works with Tabare and looking earlier at um, happy anxiety because on one hand there's a lot of chaos but there's also a huge amount of structure in that work as Absolutely. well. Absolutely, that's a, that's a good choice. Uh, yeah, happy anxiety was uh, actually was, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic and we didn't know what was really going on. Uh, lock, first lockdown, you couldn't go out, you had to put your masks on. It was like a completely different uh, and new uh, uh, way of living. So uh, there was one side that was completely anxious uh, in, in me, I mean, in, in uh, how I've, I felt at the time. But there was the other side that was actually yeah. uh, happy about it because I got to stay home and in my studio uh, without seeing anyone. And at the beginning, that was a good thing. You know, when it drags on for years, no, that that definitely turned out to be a very bad thing, even for me. But at the, at the time, uh, I thought that, you know, this is good and bad at the same time. I don't know what's going on, so I, I'm definitely anxious. And anxiety was all around, but at the same time, uh, it, it felt okay for me to just, you know, withdraw, uh, uh, give yourself some introspection time, and just go back to to the basics, decide what you want to do. Uh, it was uh, that's hence the title, you know. It's uh, it's happy anxiety. It's the colors are happy, the eyes are anxious. Yeah. Some of them are anxious. Some of them are sad some of them were happy uh, it was i think that that was a good one at the time and 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 the other works you're listing with sabari include uh blue and green beaches closed a la queue um and of course alone in the crowd i mean there's a great variety in, in all of those yeah. works um but with alone in in, in the crowds that's a, is that another part of your introspection and i also um, I also heard that you are you're a very keen motorcyclist, and I know lots of motorcyclists are very, uh, you know, people that are, are very prone to introspection and, and riding fast on their own. I mean, is that a big part of your personality? I yeah, I'll, I'll definitely I'll, I'll start with that. It's uh, you know there are uh, I'm I've been a motorcyclist for most of my life. I've been riding motorcycles wow. uh, since I was probably fourteen. 
even before I was allowed to. Uh, so, you know, again, Lebanon and the, uh, the, the way you can bend the laws, uh, I was able to do that when I was very young. So I've been doing that all through my life. Uh, now, the thing with motorcycles is uh, you have two kinds of uh, motorcyclists, of bikers. You have the... Uh, I'm, I'm not going to go with brands so that no one is pissed off at me. Um, I, I'll just say there's the weekend rider. There's uh -huh. the all day, all night, all year long rider. I'm the latter. I don't own a car anymore. It's been like uh, five, six years. I sold my car. I just have my two, three motorcycles. I do everything on a motorcycle, uh, day, night, going to dinner, going to a meeting, going to work. It's just, most, I have the whole range. I have the big travel touring motorcycle. I have the mid-range motorcycle for everyday use. And I have the, basically a BMW scooter that's for just going around uh, Beirut, the, the city and uh, getting things done. So uh, I do think it gives you, there's nothing, in, in my mind, uh, there's nothing that beats the introspection that you can have riding a motorcycle with the concentration you need to have and traveling, just the open roads and doing a thousand kilometers a day on, on great, uh, on going through different countries. Uh, you, you get to, uh, you know, there's a, there's a joke that goes, uh, uh, only a, uh, a rider, a motorcycle rider, know, knows why a dog hangs his head out of the car window where it's going. Uh, it's, it's, um, it's a joke among uh, bikers, basically, but it's actually true. I mean, the dog, you know, when you take a dog on a car trip he, and you open the window, it just goes out and has its tongue flapping around and just enjoying the That's thing. true. That's the motorcycle's Dogs are motorcyclists at heart. Probably. Or or actually motorcyclists are dogs at heart. I don't <laughs> I don't know which one works better. But that's what you were asking is absolutely true. So it's, it's a really it's a really dangerous form of meditation, I think, motorcycling. Uh, probably one of the <laughs> yeah, absolutely another joke is you know what car riders uh, call motorcyclists? God. You know, brain donors, organ donors. <laughs> So, uh, <laughs> unfortunately, that's probably true. <laughs> but at the same time, we motorcyclists call uh, car drivers uh, cagers, people who live, who ride in cages. Yeah, so, you know, there's, there's, there's give and take in, in, uh, on both sides of, uh, of this story. But it's definitely part of me. It's definitely something that, uh, you know, when I'm just... Uh, I'm just fed up with something uh, and I can't even work or, I mean, do the meditation on canvas that I was talking about. A ride on a motorcycle with two, three hours of motorcycling would just, you know, yeah. completely give you a brand new uh, outlook on life. And it still does. Yeah. That's the amazing thing. An appreciation for life. I mean, so so you, that that's incredible to hear that uh that's you you don't have cars you just have motorbikes you've been riding all your life i mean i've i've been riding motorcycles for i think five years now i mean the reason i came to africa this latest trip was uh, i've got a, a big ktm 950 and i rode it from uh rode it from england to the gambia with the intention of, of now i know why i why i like 
It makes sense now. <laughs> Likewise. Yeah. I had the most incredible trip. I mean, the plan was to get to Nigeria, but I came to the Gambia and, and have never left. But I'm, I made my way through uh, Morocco, Western Sahara, um, down in, into Dakar. But as you say, those thousand mile rides that you just go through the desert, you spend the whole day, um, you know, four or five hundred miles in one day. And you, you, you cannot help but, but finish the day. That's exactly like a motorcycle trip. You get disappointed when you get to where you're going. The fun is it's in true. getting there. It's, it's true. Uh, you want to do it all over again when you finish. Yeah, exactly. You just want to get on the bike and start again. So Riding motorbikes really um, ensures that you're not too, too comfortable, which uh, you know, is one of the big killers of, of creativity. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's one of those things like traveling, like uh, seeing new things, like uh, trying new things, uh, new foods, new music, new uh, uh, clothes, new colors that you see in the West, uh, as opposed to colors that you see in the East. Uh, it's, uh, it, it makes you, it makes you want to uh, use your your uh, senses uh, to say something creatively, and I think that uh, Lebanon is a good place to do that, and that's why we have a burgeoning uh, art scene in Lebanon. I, I think you know that we we have, you know, and sure. especially in the Middle East, Lebanon is con- still considered till this day as one of those creatively speaking, one of those uh, scenes that is actually just like constantly exploding. Uh, and we 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 export that uh, everywhere. We do that in whether it's uh, art, music, uh, film, fashion design, uh, writing. Uh, just about any creative uh, aspect has been tested and tried by by Lebanese, and they do it well. To a certain extent, they do it well. They do it well uh, internationally. So people connect to it, so whether they're in Lebanon, whether they're in the Middle East, whether they're in Europe or, or, or China or Russia or US, uh, whatever they are. Yeah, you're right. It's a, a, absolutely fascinating what is going on in the Middle East and uh, North Africa at the moment, creatively. Um, there's a, re- a real flourishing, isn't there? Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Uh, honestly, well, I think it's always been flourishing. I think uh, the West is just now realizing that there's something there. I don't think that it's something completely new. I mean, Africa is, uh, you know, it's the cradle of, of, uh, of humanity. Uh, they've been doing art for, for thousands of years, and it's, uh, it's always been special. It's not like uh, Africa just uh, noticed that they can actually paint on a piece of paper or on a canvas and uh, start being creative. I mean, the history of, of Africa and the Middle East is where everything started, including art. Absolutely. Cradle of humanity and, and cradle of civilization. And you, and you were saying it's been overwhelmed. It's, uh, yeah, in my opinion, it's, it's been overwhelmed in, in the past by... Uh, by structure, organization, and and the way uh, the West actually tried to uh, successfully, uh, one has to say, uh, try to organize things by level of what they think is important. I mean, history has always been written by the victor. 
the West is obviously the lead in, in civilization, if you will. I, I, when I say the West, I mean Europe. I definitely don't mean the US. Uh, but this is what uh, the, uh, the civilized world wanted at the time. And this is why they came up with the Renaissance. They came up with different... But at the time of the Renaissance, things were happening all over the place. I mean, in the Middle East and in Africa and Asia. It's not like they were just waiting to see what Da Vinci would come up with or... Uh, uh, you know, of, or what Michelangelo would be doing at the time, because they didn't even know that. They were just doing their own creative endeavors uh, at their own pace and uh, in their own uh, own way. We know about yeah. the, the, the Mona Lisa because it's it's one of the most important pieces because someone in the West decided that it's one of the most pieces, uh, important pieces of uh, art in the world. But do you know that this... Uh, I don't know, young artist in Thailand in, 15, in the 1500s uh, was doing portraits uh, of, of, I don't know, kings and queens and, and well-to-do people. And we don't have a remnant of that. We don't know what they were doing at the time. But I'm sure I can assure you that they were doing something important then. We just don't have it. We just don't, uh, we, we don't know it. We don't, uh, we can't look at it. They didn't have the... Louvre to actually take the Da Vinci piece and put it up there like, you know, it was uh, uh, the most important thing in history. It doesn't mean that it's not. It's obviously a, a huge thing, but it doesn't mean that it's the only thing. Yeah, I'm, I'm, if, a final question I wanted to ask you, uh, Ghazi. I mean, you you seem really in the, in the midst of... Um, uh, you, you know, cr creative impulse prime in the prime of your of your career, if I if I may say. Um, but but what exhibition or series of works, uh, looking back, are you are you um you you most pleased with, or you or you would uh, like to introduce someone perhaps who is not um, so familiar with your work? Oh, finally, a simple question. <laughs> <laughs> Save this to the end. Well, the, the answer is not going to be that simple. Well, I'm sorry. Uh, the, okay. the, the theme or the series of the sequence of paintings that I would most like, that, I would, that I'm most proud of and I'm, I'm most happy with is unfortunately the next one, the one I haven't started yet. Uh, if I say anything other than that, it wouldn't be following with the precepts of the process being the fun part of what I'm doing. I love everything I've done before, but not as much as the one I'm going to do next year or the year after that, or the one I'm, I'll be doing in 10 years, hopefully. Yeah. So just to be that's honest with you, that's the only answer I can give you. And um, that, that's a very honest and a very good answer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, um, Garzi Baker, it's been, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, speaking to you. And um, Absolutely. Yeah, and to all our listeners, I'm sure uh, they've enjoyed this podcast and hearing about your thoughts on on life and Lebanon, motorcycling, and your your deconstructivist, fantastic art that everybody should check out. It is fantastic. Um, so, Ghazi Baker, thank you very much. Thank you, Will. It was great.